Hello, SRU. How's it going, everyone? My name is Jeremy Lynch, host of the podcast where we get to share the stories about what's going on in the rock community. I am joined not by producer Dr. Nick Artman today, but I am by Director of Communications and Guest Management, Justin Zackel. Justin, how's it going, man? That's good. This this podcast is going to either go very well or very poorly for Nick. So if we succeed, there's no technical glitches or anything, then, hey, Nick's uh, job is obsolete. You know, we can do this without him. But if okay. we screw this up, he's going to be like, hey, oh, you, you can't do this without me. You know, you, you need me here. So uh, we'll see how this goes. Let's be fair to Nick that most of his work is done on the back end of all this. So it's sure. easy. We just all we have to do today is remember to hit record and then hit stop record. I don't know. And I, not swear too many times. Yeah. Because so, the last so, so episode far, so far so good, I guess. Only one. I only, yeah. only it's only happened <laughs> once. And that was last time. But I think we're gonna be okay. All right. Our guest today is Dr. Melissa Ford. Melissa is a professor of history at SRU and our resident improv expert here at The Rock. She earned her PhD in American Studies from St. Louis University, and in 2019, she was recognized with the SRU Woman of Distinction Award. Dr. Ford joins us to talk about her new book, A Brick and a Bible, Black Women's Radical Activism in the Midwest During the Great Depression. And with that, we bring you Dr. Melissa Ford. Melissa, long time no talk. How are you? Yeah, hi, I'm good. How are you both doing? I'm good, thanks. I mean, last time we did this, it was for a very different purpose. I mean, fun, yeah. but very different. It was trying to bring levity in uh, 2020. And I i don't know how well we succeeded, but uh, we tried. We tried. I don't know how well it succeeded for other people, but it was fun for us. <laughs> it, it, it was at least fun for me. Yeah, that was, man, that was looking back on that now, right? It seems yeah. equal parts an eternity ago and yesterday. Right. And I think that's, I, I want to say just like the new normal, but that's not, that's the, I don't know, the, the tragedy of living in historic times is being a witness and not being able to, to stop it. The time. I'm from going off. I don't know. I'm trying to give a historical like metaphor or something insight here. I got nothing. It's it's Sorry. weird. It's weird, right? It's weird. No, no, no. I think that's a good summary. It's just okay. weird. Okay. So big changes in your life though recently. So congratulations. So we haven't talked since, you know, you've I'm not sure which change you mean. Uh, your child. Oh yes, yes. I had a baby. Yes. Yes. And the book, uh, which we'll get to the book, the book, but yes. That's the thing. But see, I don't know how much people know about me because I didn't advertise the baby too much other than just being pregnant. Uh, and so when people say congratulations, I'm like, thanks. Which one? Um, technically, they're both my children, though. So um, I'll take them both. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, well, that's cool. awesome. Yeah, he's cool. Yeah. So we are going to talk about your book and a brick in a Bible, a Black, oh, I'm sorry, A Brick and a Bible, Black Women's Radical Activism in the Midwest During the Great Depression. This was based on your dissertation research, yes? Yes, it was based on it. I initially thought, well, I proposed the, the book as my dissertation and then just hated what I proposed and ended up writing about rewriting about 70% of it. So it's based on it, but a very different uh, project than, than where I left grad school. So, sure. yeah. So you've now dedicated, I mean, a, 
I'd say a large portion of your professional life to, to the issues on race, gender, radical social movements, and in particularly the Midwest. So what got you interested in this topic to begin with? Well, it's, it's hard to say, but I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from St. Louis, go to St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, and I was never part of that history. And I don't mean to like place the blame on people, but like I never learned that part of history of race sure. in the Midwest. Um, and you grow up in those suburbs as a middle class white girl. It didn't occur to me that that was a uh, part of my history. And so it wasn't until I went away to college and then came back to, to St. Louis and it was in grad school and starting to think really critical as one does in grad school and question everything around me, I realized that there's this amazing story that hadn't uh, been highlighted as, as, as much as it should have. And that that amazing story of this uh, activism of working class Black women, it should be uh, accessible to, to everyone. And, and um, it was my role as a um, you know, person with who had the time to, to research this, to, to elevate those voices and help bring those stories to life. So, yeah, so, go ahead. So, so in short, it's like, I never got that history. So I got mad when I figured out I had, there was a right. gap in my education. So I'm like, screw you. I'll write the book on it. And right. that's how, that's how it went. Nicely done. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And so one of those stories that you came across was the story that's the foundation of the book. So you want to give us a little synopsis. Yeah. So it's such a great story. It, it feels like it's made up and it might be, but I don't care. Um, one, <laughs> the history one, major. One, one teacher once told me that all um, stories are made up and some of them even happened. Um, and so I like to think this is one story that even if it didn't physically happen, it was metaphorically there. Okay. But it's, it's May 1933. There are several nut picking factories in St. Louis area, factories where women, black women in particularly, would uh, sit at these long tables and just crack open pecans for hours and hours and hours and hours. And it was tedious work. They were with using really tiny knives. They were stabbing themselves. The air, the air was filled with nut dust and they're choking. And so finally, they're like, screw this, we're going on strike. And this is 1933. The country's in its worst economic depression. And these black women work some of the most exploited workers. And instead of, you know, rolling over, instead of just sighing and continuing with, with the suffering, they joined forces with local communists uh, to go on strike. And for two weeks, they were picketing these nut pack factories. They were uh, in meetings with the mayor. They are marching down the streets and demonstrating in huge numbers. Over a thousand women were involved in these. And eventually other industries got, um, other factories um, got involved as well. And so there's this one particularly big protest that, that led to City Hall. They were marching down um, the street leading to City Hall and Carrie Smith, who was one of the leaders of, of the nut pickers, she steps onto the steps of City Hall and she's carrying a Bible in one hand and a brick in the other. And she's rallying the workers and she's saying, girls, we cannot lose. And so that's where it comes from, a brick and a Bible, that this African-American working class woman in the middle of the Greatest Depression is bringing a brick and a Bible to a protest, to a picket line, to assert her rights as, as a person and as a woman and as a as a worker is just so extraordinary. And I think that the uh, imagery there is, first of all, amazing, like this right. middle aged worker for. She hadn't done anything remotely like this before, but now she's, you know, walking hand in hand with communists. And these aren't 
people who look like her. They're white communists. Many of them are immigrants, uh, European immigrants. And so the fact that she's walking side by side with them and then bringing a, a brick that kind of like symbolizes her militancy and then a Bible because she's religious too. And they won. They won all their demands. Um, and that's just one instance of this remarkable activism that you know hundreds, if, if not thousands of black women are engaging in, in the Midwest. And like, that was the story. Those are the stories that we don't get told in, in high school. Right. And that's the one that's like, are you kidding? That's so badass. And so I had to name it that just because it's so badass. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, good title, right? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. The original title of my dissertation was a Bible in one hand, a brick in the other, and then the tagline. And it was just way too long. So I had to kill it. Editors. Yeah. I mean, editors, publishers, the rules and suggestions. Yeah. How they want to publish things. It's yeah. awful. So of sort of within that story though, was this idea that the Midwest, despite you know, maybe common perception or, or yeah. other people's perceptions of the past was this place or, and, you know, you make the point that still is the place where there is a lot of these movements. Right. Absolutely. That that's Midwest is, you know, the flyover zone, this place exactly. where nothing happens. It's prairies, it's conservative farmlands. Uh, and so when, I mean, I was in grad school when Ferguson happened and right. a lot of the national media was like, well, how could this happen in Missouri? What's going on in the nation's heartland? And me as a grad student, I'm like, hello, over here. I can tell you, I have the history. It's not the first time. It's not the last time because we saw the same thing erupt in Minneapolis with George Floyd, uh, that these Midwestern cities that were supposedly conservative and uh, you know whitewashed are, are instances of real revolutionary and radical potential that uh, have made their history um, that are, you know, uh, what's the word? I don't know, that are just, you know, products of this history that didn't start in, you know, 2015 or 2020, but have long roots um, in the Midwest. Yeah. And what is it about the Midwest, right? The, because right. one, like you said, it does have that perception, but it's not. It's, that's the thing, like, Whenever I say I study the Midwest, I always have to defend it. If someone says exactly, oh, I, that's yeah. all. My, and my question was almost asking you to defend yeah. it because, I, yeah, I get it for like sure. Why, well, why there, there's Southern studies, there's Southern history associations, there's West Coast, there's all these things. But like, there wasn't a Midwestern historical association until literally five years ago. Like the books of the Midwest as a as an area of study are still being written, hmm. and I don't know, just. As a historian, if someone asks you, why study this? I just want to be like, why not? <laughs> just sure. only study what Fair I want enough. to study. But I think in, in terms of it's a real kind of value for, for the country is that it helps us answer these questions of why does Ferguson happen? Why does George Floyd happen? Well, it's not out of nowhere. It's this long legacy of racism, classism, and violence towards people of color in urban areas in the Midwest yeah. And so, I mean, how does that, we, we use history, right, to help us learn about what's going on around us now and in today's world. So how does, how does that translate or what's that transfer now? It's, yeah, that's the hard part. Uh, sure. yeah, for me as a historian, I just put the history out there and then someone else does the work, right? <laughs> Uh, I'm just like, hey, you guys, this history is great. You should, you should go. You should read this. Yeah, you should go do something about this, these, this stuff. 
But I think it's important because we can't engage in, in, in action. We can't engage in meaningful work today if we don't understand that these problems are deep-seated and long-standing. Uh, for instance, just thinking about the Amazon workers who are able to organize this week mm. into a labor union, that's huge. Um, but if you had, can, if you know the history of of labor and you know the struggles of them, you can appreciate it even even more to see like people have literally died, so right. that you can reach this point in American history that Amazon workers can organize and be protected because of that. And so it's the same thing with Black working class activism in the Midwest. If we want to get on board with. Um, you know, the Occupy movement or Black Lives Matter or um, in any sort of working class uh, agitation. We have to understand that this is a we're building on something. We're not making nothing out of thin air. We're building. Um, and often it's hard because you're fighting for the same damn things. Right. Uh, right. 1930s, they're talking about health care. They're talking about better working conditions. They're talking about uh, protections and that's exactly what like the Amazon workers were talking about. And so it's, it's frustrating as a historian to, to see like these things are still being fought for. Um, I mean, they use the, the, I guess the popular expression is history repeats itself. Right. I mean, where, as a historian, what do you feel about that? Well, supposedly Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Mm. So I feel like that, that one better. That, yeah, yeah. That rhyming is happening. We're seeing similarities, but ultimately it's a new context, right? 1933 was the context of a, the greatest economic depression. 2022 is on the tail end of the greatest pandemic. Right. Where, we, where do we stand? And ultimately, th there's the other saying, like, we study history so we don't have to repeat it. Well, I study history so we don't have to repeat it, but I sit by while other people do. Is the other, the other the frustrating. That's the frustrating part of it, right? Yeah. So ultimately, it's um, the historian's job is to present this information and, and stress it. And I mean, the historian's job is to teach, right? Teach that next generation. And I find that my book, my work, um, comes out every single day in my classes, um, saying and demonstrating that understanding the past is essential if we want to meaningfully shape our future. Yeah. Right. And so you get that opportunity thing, you know, as a professor, it's, it's so worth everything. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, I love it. And specifically at Slippery Rock, which, you know, has its foundations in being a teaching college. I teach so many teachers. And so it's so great knowing that the next generation of teachers in Pennsylvania and in other schools are going to have this emphasis on it's not about not repeating the mistakes of the past it's about learning the past and moving forward with with meaningful right. intentions and learning some of the not so great parts of the past instead right. of just you know skipping yeah. over a few yeah absolutely learning that you know jackie robinson if we're talking on uh opening, oh, it's day, opening day of baseball as we're recording this bad boy yeah in 1941 jackie robinson was in an army camp in texas he was on a bus and was told by the bus driver to move from the, the whites only section. Jackie Robinson did this, right? In 1941, this is before Rosa Parks. This is supposedly the, the golden poster boy of Major League Baseball. Here he yeah. is violating social norms in Texas, and he was court-martialed for it. He eventually was um, uh, released or wasn't convicted or whatever. 
Um, and went on, of course, to integrate Major League Baseball. But he has this huge legacy of a radical activist past that we whitewash um, because we like to see him run out doubles. Um, he was a great baseball player, though, of course. But he was a great baseball player. A great activist, too. And so, yeah, so teaching that not like hidden history, but that underemphasized history uh, to, to Western Pennsylvania students is, is one of my great joys. Um, they don't understand my love for the Midwest, though. So it's a little hard. Which is ironic because I always tell people, right, like we where we're at in Western Pennsylvania it's pretty close. Okay. See, I was going to make that argument, but it's I didn't close. know how it go over. Well, I don't know how it goes over, but I tell people all the time, it's like, you could just take a little bit of Ohio and draw that line a little yeah. bit further east and capture most of us. I, I really think there's something to that. Like, this is eastern Midwest, if you will. It's got that feel to it, right? Yeah. Um, I, I say the only difference between St. Louis and Pittsburgh is the heels, uh, sorry, the hills and the pierogies. Um, yeah, I give you a, a nod for a little bit. I mean, I'm not your baseball's better now. Let's well, just yeah. get that out there. Well, you have yeah. a football team, so we do. Yeah, <laughs> you don't anymore, but. Thanks for bringing. That anyway, up. side conversation. Yeah, right. Side conversation. But, uh, yeah, no, but you're right. Like. I, I, you know, there's a million popular drawings out there of, you know, if we really drew lines based on geopolitical and, and right. you know, sort of popular, you know, populations and culture rather than state lines, how different it would look in the Appalachian corridor. And right. yeah, people sort of carve off this part of Western Pennsylvania and slip it right there into Ohio, Missouri. I mean, the National League Central Division includes Pittsburgh. So I don't know what further proof you need. Ooh, that's, that's your evidence? That's I actually brought that with? up at an academic conference. Someone asked, what's the Midwest? And I'm like, baseball, end of story, NL Central, that's it. That just means Pirate fans have to stay up later uh, one extra hour because there are other games are in the Central time zone. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, but yeah, so, so I, that's one of the things like having to defend what you study is so weird. And this, and, and I know you didn't ask this question, but I know people are asking it. They certainly asked it on Twitter, but like, why, what does a white woman have to do with studying black women's radical activism? That, and I mean, that's, that's certainly that's a, a fair question, question, right? Like, yeah. What, yeah. And uh, on the one hand, I, feel like I need to defend myself. But on the other hand, I feel like I need to defend these women because for so long their stories haven't been heard. So I feel like my place isn't to like rescue them, but my place is to elevate and heighten those voices that have been marginalized. Right. And since I'm a white woman um, who has been afforded a great education and I have that privilege of doing research and publishing, it's my honor to, to be a part of that elevation of those remarkable badass stories. Yeah, and if we always if 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 all, we only studied our own uh, uh, past uh, based on our own classes and, and uh, socioeconomic status, then that would just perpetuate through history. We we need to have people that are uh, kind of cross analyzing different different groups to uh, to bring voices that uh, might not be previously heard. Right. And it's never like I'm speaking for these women because I know best or I know exactly what they went through. It's never that. Sure. I'm a historian. I look at the documents. I look at the archives. I look at the arguments. I see what's there, what's not there. And I construct this history as best I can. Um, and so, so yeah, so it's hard, uh, but it's so, so, so fulfilling. 
So what are you trying to convey or what's the message you try to instill in your students? I guess we can look at it both in two ways and I'll let you answer either or both. I think broader in terms of understanding and appreciating history and then more specifically, you know, the struggle of black women during this time in the Midwest or in general and how that translates to today. I know there's a lot of questions all in one, but I'll let you answer whichever one you want boil it down to, uh, even in the the worst economic times, like the Great Depression or the worst health-related crises in the world's history, um, even during times of slavery and during times of brutal oppression of of laborers and workers, there are people who fought back. There are those who resisted. And often we ignore those histories because it's it's easier to tell this dominant story of, well, everyone in the, the depression was depressed. Everyone in the Midwest was, was white and conservative. Well, no, history is complicated. Um, and if we look at those stories of fighting and resistance, ultimately they inspire us today. And sometimes that resistance isn't always, you know, fighting against the man. Sometimes that resistance is building community. And I know I saw a ton of that during the pandemic and continue to see that. And so it's very heartening to see that, uh, there is, there's still elements of, of that resistance. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that's an important point, right? Because, you know, obviously there's problems that we need to address as a society, as a culture, as a collective humanity today. And I think some people approach them as like, these are so insurmountable because they're so big. Right. But I think looking back at history and, and looking at movements like that and looking at even labor movements in the late, 1890s, right? That and look at the the fight for gay rights and and gay marriage and look at look the- at what seemed like women's rights and in in general and civil rights what seemed like completely insurmountable at the time were overcome if in you, some aspects. If you told me 2 years ago that we would have um, confirmed a black woman as a Supreme Court justice, I would have laughed at you. Sure. And we did today. Yeah. Because people fought and continue to fight. And it's so easy to, to roll over and get disheartened. And I do all the time because I've studied the worst of what humanity can do. Sure. But ultimately, um, focusing those stories of resistance and those who fought back is is what, you know, keeps us going today and back then, I think. Yeah, I, I- Again, not, it's important (laughs) that we, not that we under, because we're not, like you said, I'm going to use the Mark Twain quote from now on, right? We're not maybe doomed to repeat it, but it's, we need to understand it because we need to understand that if we see something wrong today, that if we come together as a community and we fight hard enough, then we can overcome things that even now seem like impossible. And I think the thing that, and the thing that is most important for students to learn is that doesn't mean you have to become a Supreme Court justice. That doesn't mean to make change. You have to be president of the United States or, or some big, important person. Huge change happens on the, the personal level. It happens in community level, happens in classrooms. Um, and so focusing on your agency there is um makes it seem less insurmountable and really puts a lot uh, in your control. And so for me, sometimes I look at the world and be like, well, F this. So we don't have to sure. everything else. F this. I can't do anything. But then You're I look welcome, at, Nick. 
<laughs> yeah. But then I look at my students in my classroom, you're like, you know, if I can just change one person's mind about, you know, Jackie Robinson, then my work today is done. And you don't have to write a book about it. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah. How are those conversations? Are they, I mean, how do you approach that? Because they are sometimes difficult conversations, especially considering that a lot of these students went to maybe in their education, they, they were like probably you and me and yeah. maybe Justin didn't get that part of history. Slipper accidents are the best. And I don't just say that because I don't, because I want a job. Um, <laughs> I say that because they simply are. I've taught at a couple other institutions and I, I've read blogs and, you know, horrible chat oh, yeah. rooms and forums about just how terrible students are. Slippery Rock students, for the most part, interclass with broad, open minds, ready to, to learn about history, if you're willing to engage them. And I think being honest and open with them, um, like I am with you, like I, my first class, for whenever I teach African-American history, I say, guys, I know I'm a white woman. Let's talk about why I think sure. I'm good to teach this class and things like that. You be honest about your own personal experience and slipper experience, I think really respond to that. And they have overwhelmingly responded well and positively. And I know some of them picked up history minors because of my classes or decided to focus on civil rights um, uh, law um, after taking some of my classes. And it's, and I don't want to say it, it's not just me, right? There are other teachers at Slippery Rock who are, are teaching race and diversity and inclusion. And so um, it's been great. I was scared, I'll, I'll, sure. honestly. Moving to Western Pennsylvania from St. Louis to teach about race and gender, I was like, good luck to me. But um, <laughs> why is that? The stereotypes. Yeah. Which now that I say I hate the uh, Midwest for being stereotyped, and then I totally stereotyped Western Pennsylvania. Hmm. Whoops. What type of stereotypes? No, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not being like uh, defending. I'm a, I'm a lifelong Western Pennsylvania resident. I just like to hear other people describe. Um, you know, we we have we have, we have our, we have our foibles, but I want to hear. I like to just uh, see the outside perspective. What it has to think. Well, I was applying for jobs in 2016, so I saw the uh, presidential election results. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, and wasn't sure how I'd be received. Sure. That's fair. Yeah. But uh, since then, like I said, students and Slippery Rock students in particular are ready to be engaged, ready to be challenged. And if you're honest and open with them, I think that that's a journey you can go on together. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you say that you, you, a lot of people do base, based on, you know, red state or blue state, but you know, it, it, that kind of, uh, uh, you, know, you know, binary thought is it, it you know, it, it, it's easy to, to, to reduce things to that, but there's so much more nuance right. and, and context involved with different issues and different perspectives. So um, I think like that, that, I mean, that can be said, not just from a Midwesterner looking at Western Pennsylvania, it could be like a Western Pennsylvania looking at the South, you know, there, there's uh, it, it's easy for people just to uh, generalize uh, uh, different, different populations. But then when you move into that area, you get embedded with those people, then you learn that some of those uh, uh, it collapses, uh, or, or it, it, it brings to light the, the, the context and nuances. Absolutely. And that's why I like, always go back to history is complicated. Let's look at yeah. this complication. That's where 
that's where we can really under come to understanding each other and where we are today. Well, humans are complicated, right? Yeah, yeah, so of course good. our history is going to be complicated. I think people tend to forget that. Yeah, absolutely. Good luck figuring us out. Probably have a better chance of figuring it out in the past than in the present. Honestly, yeah. And sometimes there's like inaccessible histories, especially when you talk about working class black women. You're like, well, I don't know what she was thinking. I don't know what she did that day. I'll never know. All right, Melissa, we end this podcast with three questions. And I want to interrupt um, you right here because we we, we kind of teed her up as being a, an improv uh, special. If you could describe that real quick, that would be a good segue into the three uh, questions, right? Because you're assuming one of my three questions oh, isn't about okay, her all improv. Right. All right. See, look at so, this guy. See, they do this to me all the time, right? I like, trust you, Jeremy. I, I trust you. Good. They don't, they don't trust me. They don't trust me at all. Wow. A lot of things going on here. A lot of things going on there. All right. Questions or yeah. Oh yeah. We're going to start with the questions unless Justin has any other thing. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> All right. No, I'm kidding. Question number one. Yes. What is your best SRU memory? Oh God. You couldn't have asked me that before. So I could think of something. No. Now we're testing her improv, her improvisational skills here. Oh, my improv skills aren't that good. And what if I say one moment when someone and someone's listening, they're like, what? It wasn't this moment. Uh, Not that many people listen. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know what? See, you're filtering them now. No, I am. I'm trying to think. You just got to go with one. I should go with one. Um, I really can't think of which one I want to choose. Okay, we'll we'll go with uh, no, no. Oh my god, I hate you so much for doing. We ever that. stumped? Yeah, can we edit all of this out? Um, just Nick, listen. So yeah. all we do is send these audio files to Nick, okay. and then somehow he makes magic happen, and it comes out produced very well. Okay, well, I'm just going to start cursing so. until I can think of my moments. <laughs> Um, and honestly, it's, I, okay, I found it. I wish it were better. Uh, I wish it were more student oriented and people oriented, but it was honestly the first time I sat down at my desk in my office um, because coming out, I was one year out of grad school. I had been on the job market for two years and I thought there's no way I'm ever going to get a job. I was working at Target when I applied to, to Slippery Rock and to sit down in my own office with a sign on the door that said, this is Dr. Melissa Ford, professor of history's office. It was like this amazing sense of a dream come true. So that's a great one. What are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, and then every day since every day since then has been another dream come true. Let's just keep on going with the, that. Fair enough. That's a good one. I like that one. No, I, I'll tell you. The first time I walked into my office and saw the Dr. Lynch yeah, yeah. placard, I, I laughed at first. Like, I laughed on the way in. Like, really? <laughs> so, yeah. I took a picture and Instagrammed it. So, there you go. Right. Yep. I sent mine to my mom. There you go. There you go. Yep. Yeah. All right. Question number two. Yeah. You are the faculty advisor for the Rock'em Sock'em Improv Troupe at Slippery Rock University. Yeah. So first of all, I, I do want to ask before I get the actual question, how's that going? You guys gotten that back going after? I know there was a that break because, you know, well, we disappeared for a year and a half. Yeah, it, it we really took a hit. Improv and performance yeah. arts just really took a hit with um, Zoom University. 
And then honestly, uh, with masks mandate, it's very hard to do improv. And then I'm actually not in person on campus this semester. So we haven't been meeting either. So, so yeah. it's, it's in hiatus. Um, but I'm really optimistic because actually when I was teaching in the fall, uh, I had the opportunity to fill in for a theater professor who was teaching an improv class who, who, who got ill. And so they asked me to fill in and I'm like, well, yeah, of course I've never taught theater. I have no professional degree in it. Of course I can do improv. Uh, and it was a blast. And so I had a bunch of students say they were interested in pursuing it. So I feel like the improv spirit is really there and alive at Slippery Rock. So I can't wait to get back in things um, next fall. Well, I'm hoping I'm hoping that's the case. I would love to see that. Yeah, there's some professors I want to um, bring in on the action too. So stay tuned. Oh, nice. Okay, I reach out. <clears throat> you gotta audition people. Oh yeah, very, very. Specific. Yeah, you can't just can't just let anyone in, right? Oh yeah, no, you never do that. <laughs> All right. Well, here is the actual question: um, Who, if you had the choice, would you like to do an improv scene with? Um, and it doesn't have to be Slippery Rock faculty. It could be, we could go broader here. That's a really interesting question. I've never even thought about it. I get the like, who would you want to sit down for dinner with and things like that. Um, yeah, but this person, this is different. Right. I think Bill Murray. Uh, his comedy is so understated that I would be amazing to just kind of be present in that. I think I'd be terrified, right? That's true. But I feel like he's so down to earth, right? Hopefully. I mean, he was in Hopefully. zombie land. He was, a, he was Garfield. Come on. It's a, I mean, it's a quality, it's a quality answer. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it'll ever happen. So uh, interesting question. Thank you. All right. Last question. Okay. If you had to pick and you have to pick, which animal would you rather have chasing you? An alligator or a bear? Um, what is with alligators? You like poke them in the eye or something. Um, I think oh, they're so fast, but they can't like, climb trees. Okay. I'm going to go with alligator. Cause of the tree thing, the tree thing. I okay. mean, I probably can't climb a tree either, but I haven't tried recently. So yeah, Fair that, enough. that's my answer. <laughs> well, Melissa, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk to us today about your book. Justin is giving me hand signals over there. Let's give her an opportunity to plug her book. Where can people buy it? When does it go on sale? Let's hear it. Because I wasn't, you know, see, you know, Justin, we are I'm also keeping, auditioning. I'm, I'm keeping we are auditioning for I'm, the host role here as well. Uh, I'm, I'm auditioning uh, for, for the technical producer and the host role. I'm like kind of caught in between, wow. you know, so. All right. Good. So if you would go ahead and plug yourself. Yeah. Uh, so it is available through Southern Illinois University Press um, through their website or Amazon. It's on Amazon, which I was actually pretty stoked about, even though I have issues with Amazon just to be on Amazon. And then it tells you like where you are on book lists. So I'm like 9,000th place in Black history. So yeah, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, and any social medias you want to share? Yeah. Uh, Twitter, I'm at Melissa Ford PhD. And, yeah. All right. Well, again, congratulations on the addition to the family. Congratulations <laughs> on the book. We look forward to having you back on campus in the fall and seeing what that brings. And we'll talk to you soon. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. It's great being back. All right, SRU. Thank you for joining us. We will talk to you soon. Hello, SRU is brought to you by Slippery Rock University and is part of the WSRU Podcast Network. 
It's hosted by Jeremy Lynch and produced by Nick Artman and Justin Zackel. If you or someone you know has an SRU story, send it on over to podcast at sru.edu. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review Hello SRU wherever you get your podcasts.